1: foundation arvind gupta the reason that people are talking about india is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years enjoy this week's show welcome to behind the markets here on business radio powered by the warren school i'm your host jeremy schwartz global head of research at wisdom tree my co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of "Stocks for Long Run" and "The Future for Investors." Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer sale of any investment products. And the views our guests are guests of their own, and not those of WisdomTree or its affiliates. We're gonna have a really interesting show—a really interesting uh, few guests talking about some of the new technologies, new ideas for uh, the what, platform economies, and and other types of innovative investment type uh, solutions. Um, but we're gonna get to, to start off the show like like always with some comments from Professor Siegel. Professor, S and P above 4,100. It's been a a good start to the year here. Oh wow.
2: Well, as we said, yeah, uh, the push is on uh i i i uh, hope everyone did note uh the um uh, big jump of uh, producer prices that we got report eight thirty today um well above expectations uh Tuesday we will have consumer prices um now now producer prices are more volatile, so it you know uh they, they do jump around but Again, the thesis I have is that we're going to have far more inflation this year, um, and that uh, uh, stocks are the place to be in an inflationary world, real assets are the place to be in an inflationary world, uh, and the stimulus uh, provided by, well, first of all, put in place last year by the Fed and the government, and then doubled down by the Biden administration, is going to push the economy to extreme strength this year. Uh, there'll be a shortage of workers, there'll be rising prices, rising wages. And everyone will be partying in one of the biggest booms that we will have had uh, with the reopening of the economy. Good
1: for stocks until
2: the Fed really has to uh, clamp down.
1: As you see things opening, any any personal anecdotes? Has your own opening schedule can, you know, changed at all? Is, is everything on track in your mind oh, in that yeah. opening? I mean, I-
2: uh, yeah i i I think everything is on track. I mean you know it is uh that they say the race between the vaccines and the variants the variants are more transmissible um you know we do see that michigan uh burst but but overall the number of cases are not going up and uh and overall the number of deaths are still going down because the people are that are getting it are the younger people uh doesn't mean that you know it's an easy disease at any point and I would you know hope to see the death rate go down further as more and more people take it i think the vaccines are going to win against a potential fourth wave here and when they win i mean then then that just totally opens up the economy uh in in uh the in the summer um, but i think it's already opening up uh right now in terms of you know when you, when you look at bookings and all the rest um uh, you know, I'm mean, actually the, the Dr. Scott Gowley was on this morning, basically uh, saying that you know uh, the Norwegian the cruise lines and uh, several others have uh, um, uh, the state of Florida has uh, sued the CDC for for preventing uh, sailings. Uh, the the uh, cruises are now going to require you have been vaccinated proof of vaccinations, according to Dr. Gottlieb the crews actually once they require that and enforce that and with their current uh, measures is really the safest place to be safer than airlines safer than Disney World safer than things that are open right now um, now whether the CDC is going to comply or not I don't know but uh, there's an example of a huge industry that you know could open up by the summer uh uh you know and uh, obviously a lot of uh, pressures for them to to actually do so.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to see how different businesses manage what they require, what they make you do to do that. As you think about the the different market impacts this year, so you have this battle of you sort of talk about the virus, you have interest rates rising. Is is uh is there a level here that you get worried on the rates rising for yeah. the markets, or is? Well, you know, I tell you that, that ten pound
2: is remarkably resilient. I mean, you know, and when that PPI, uh, PPI went up you know it kind of went up to 168 and and, and you know, right now i'm looking at a 160 uh, you know 37 um uh you know there's still an enormous demand for government debt as a hedge um even though you know all other asset classes are performing it you know people you know are are you know, are wedded to it. I mean, this this really happened after World War II, too. I people were still wedded to the long-term bonds, uh, despite again higher inflation, higher debt pushing everything in the economy higher. Um, and it wasn't until the '60s they really gave up the ghost and say, "I'm not going with this anymore." So, I mean, the you know, you don't you don't change a 40-year bull market overnight, uh, which is, of course, what ended last year, in my opinion, on the on the on the long-term treasuries. I mean, there's there's still huge residual demand, uh, still short-run negative, uh, you know, uh, hedge demand, negative beta uh, uh, demand for for that treasury's um, uh, aging demand as the economy ages, risk aversion comes in. Uh, so that's still that's still there. It's just that the price. To hold those bonds in an inflationary environment in real terms, just is going to be more and more expensive. The question is, uh, you know, it's an insurance policy, but it's a bit, it's becoming a more and more expensive insurance policy. The question is, probably you say, hey, I don't need this anymore, or I certainly don't need as much of it anymore. It's just too costly to hold. But again, you don't turn around a forty-year bull market overnight. Still tremendous demand. I do expect that ten-year Treasury. Uh, to be above 2% by year-end uh,
3: or earlier.
1: Thanks for a of final comment before I let you go. the the Certainly the infrastructure spending is, is one of the big stories and, and how they pay for that, if they pay for that, the taxes, corporate taxes. How, how do you see that from your read of the politics now? Yeah, that's
2: that's, that's a good point. And, and, and again, what seems to be happening is exactly uh, the story we've been telling on our show for six months. Uh, I said that uh, I thought the the corporate tax rate would settle at twenty five. Uh, you know, Biden has now officially said I'm willing to negotiate. Mansion has said I, I can do twenty five. Uh, you know, that's all really they need. I, I, I you know, there's a couple other Democrats that some of the northeast democrats are going to expand you know demand an expansion of salt i think they'll get it they'll ask for an elimination of the salt deduction but i think they'll get an expansion to twenty or twenty five thousand so there will be some goodies put in there will be a corporate tax rise. there will be a personal tax rise but uh... as i said uh... months ago it it would be about half of the biden package uh... that he proposed uh uh on his website uh you know before the election and uh, it looks to me pretty much that that's where uh it will uh, uh settle down actually uh, there's believe it or not a little bit more resistant to uh, even compromise taxes than i thought there would be so he's got to do more log rolling but, but they will do log rolling they'll give enough to everyone so they will get the 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 uh the 50 votes uh, on on side all their dems on side for a a modest uh, tax increase, which I do believe will be corporate to 25.
1: Very good. Always a pleasure to get some thought from you to start the show.
2: Thank you very much.
1: I'm going to turn the conversation over to our two guests. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking with Kai Wu, who is the founder and chief investment officer at Sparkline Capital. Uh, I've recently come across some of Kai's research on Twitter and on his website and a lot of really interesting stuff that I think we're going to be able to talk to Kai about. Uh, and then also a return guest, Alex Mozed, the founder and CEO of Applico, uh, who we've done some work with licensing some of Applico's data for an index. Kai and Alex, welcome to Behind the Markets. Kai, you did a little bit of looking at the future of platforms and, and had a pretty cool chart on what are the percentages of companies in a sector that you've identified as platform companies. Top, you've got communications and tech, where you said about 50 to 60%, then some that there's like nothing in yet, staples, the commodity sectors, healthcare, pretty low. Um, how do you see the future of platforms evolving? value? Are you thinking about value in your process? What are, you, what are you thinking about there?
0: Yeah, no, I, I would say that I am a value investor. Um, it's just that the definition of value, I believe, needs to evolve somewhat, right? You think about the roots of the investment style, you know, Ben Graham in the 1930s, the industrial era, where, you know, fair value, intrinsic value was pretty much just the, you know, value of tangible assets on a firm's balance sheet. You know, we've, we, the world has changed so much over the past century, um, you know, by most uh, measures, intangible assets. So the other part of the balance sheet, um, not captured um, by tangibles, is 50 to 80 percent um, of a firm's value. So it's really important to find ways to to value this across companies. The problem, of course, is that that information is either not present in accounting statements or just giving cursory or very aggregated measures. And that's why you know we're forced, not by choice, but we're forced to start looking at alternative data and applying some of these um, tools that allow us to comb through unstructured data in order to um, value these intangibles, right? And when I say intangibles, just, just to be clear, I mean you know intellectual property, human capital, brand equity, and network effects, which is probably what's most relevant for this discussion. Very good. And
1: how do you think about this intangibles? Is it really then become a tech story? Or, or does this become beyond technology companies?
0: Yeah. So, when I say fifty to eighty percent, I mean in the aggregate basis. So, across the, let say the S and P five hundred, about fifty to eighty percent of the value is intangible. Now, obviously, that varies widely by sector. So, financials and real estate are, you know, that's less of a factor. Whereas, like in healthcare, so like pharma and um, in technology stocks. Um, R&D and intellectual property in particular are super important. Brand equity is actually the most important in consumer discretionary. Um, Consumer-facing companies have found that they get pretty good ROI to do advertising. Um, Not the same for everyone, though. So it varies a little bit, depending on who you're talking about.
1: So Alex, maybe tell a little bit about Applico. You guys started doing some work. We got to know each other on the platform companies. Maybe just remind listeners, for people hearing it for the first time, how you came to thinking about platform companies and, and some of your research there.
3: Yeah, so I co-authored a book called Modern Monopolies. It defines this platform business model. Many people use the word platform quite differently. Uh, the way we think about it is it's a, it's a business model, not a product, not a piece of technology. And it's a business model that creates value by facilitating exchange. And you have a consumer on one side of that transaction, and you have a producer on the other side of that transaction. So if you think about FAMGA, for example – Amazon's producers are third-party sellers, where that, those products are third-party products. They don't sit on Amazon's balance sheet, right? On Google, you have websites and Google search. You have uh, content creators on YouTube. None of that inventory sits on Google's balance sheet. Um, that's quite the difference when we look at Netflix, for example, which, you know, everyone raves about because of Fang. But Netflix is not a platform business. If you think about where all their video... Um, assets and liabilities sit; it's on their balance sheet. They're either creating their own videos or they're licensing that content. It's not this asset-light, network effect-driven type of model, which is which is what we've defined as as the platform business model.
1: And, and Kai, how, so how did where did your interest in platform companies spark from uh, from at Sparkline Capital?
0: Yeah, no, look, I'm a generalist. Um, I don't have a specific focus on platforms or even tech companies. Um, you know, it, it just came about because they're, they've just become such a dominant part of the market. It's impossible to ignore, right? You know, Alex, you mentioned the five biggest companies are all asset-light platform companies comprising about 20% of the S&P 500. Like, they've reached an unprecedented scale, multi-trillion dollar firms. And so, of course, the question is, with such market concentration, what is it that has allowed these firms to scale so large? And, and is it sustainable? Right? Because we've seen periods of concentration, like in the dot-com bubble and before that, that you know just ended up reversing. Is this time different? So you know that led me to the next step, which is to say, what is it that these companies are doing? Is it fundamentally different from traditional businesses? And if so, do we need to adapt as investors our techniques to analyze them? Um, so, for example, I'll talk about this more later. But like you know, value investing is, is premised on the idea of mean reversion, right? That you know, if a firm has growth, it'll probably disappoint and, and then go the other way. But as you know, um, you discuss in your book as well. Um, these, these are winner-take-all companies, right? The dynamics of platform competition are virtual and vicious cycles where, you know, you'll have 100 people enter the arena and to survive, everyone else goes to zero, um, which is kind of fundamentally different, for instance, um, from what um, a traditional value investor's approach might lead to. And then also the asset-life business aspect of it. I think Buffett talks about this, how, you know, back in the day, the biggest companies were, you know, GM. Um, nowadays, the biggest companies, as you point out, um, they they kind of outsource all the means of production and what they actually hold on their balance sheet or you know, maybe some office space, but pretty much nothing. And so you have the big tech giants on one end, and then the market's being squeezed, right? Because on the bottom of the market, you now have the entrance of many new platforms in the public markets. So Uber and Lyft in 2019, DoorDash and Airbnb, you know, and soon, you know, Coinbase and Roblox, depending on how you define it. Um, you know, I'll get into how I'll this later, but... You know, over the past decade, what I found was that the number of platforms in the S&P 500 has grown from 40 to 100. Um, So that's a pretty important growth of 20% of the market. And if you think about in terms of the percentage of market cap controlled by platforms, the number is actually like 37%, so almost 40% of the market. So, look, you just can't ignore these things anymore. They're super important, and, you know, we should develop tools of investors to analyze them.
1: Yeah, you both have some different ways and, and it's sort of interesting to see the types of, of platforms you identified in your piece um, on on uh, you know, Sparkline Capital website. You can see his, his piece, The Platform Economy. Alex, maybe talk about how you thought about identifying platforms and then let's go to Kai and have him describe how he sort of tried to solve the challenge of identifying who are these platforms.
3: Yeah, I think the... The magic of these platform businesses is that they don't treat all revenue streams the same. And so when you look at many of the the FAMGA, the, the large tech monopolies, they actually have uh, what we would call linear revenue streams, more analog revenue streams, and then they have platform revenue streams. And so you can't just look at any one of these companies and Uh, kind of whitewash how how their business works. So, So some of the strongest and biggest what are still platform businesses are actually have a hybrid approach. They have multiple types of business models, many of which those more linear analog business models are built around or on top of that white hot core of that monopolistic winner take all platform business. So you see this with Apple, you see this with Amazon, you see this with a variety of these uh, businesses where they reach that dominant scale in, in one key platform market, and then they build additional linear or value-added services on top of it. And then you also see some of these now, the the, the some of the large tech monopolies, they'll use M&A to buy other up-and-coming platform businesses and bolt them into um, their existing ecosystem and now kind of become platform conglomerates. So the way we look at it is how can you identify how much platform revenue does a business have? Is that platform revenue a material part of their overall revenue mix? Um, And if so, then they would be identified as actually being a platform business.
1: Then Kai, you uh, you talked about using machine learning and uh, natural language processing to find some of these companies, or at least in technology too, as a part of your process. A really interesting, what you called the taxonomy between transaction platforms, innovation platforms. Maybe talk through how you went through the process of, of trying to bring this all together to identify the right companies.
0: Okay, yeah. So that's absolutely right. Look, the motivating question for me was, to determine what is the stock market performance of platforms. but in order to do that, I first had to define what is a platform. And Alex, as, as Alex points out, it's not as easy as you might think, right? Plenty of companies employ hybrid models, as you mentioned. You know, some linear, some um, you know platform, and you know companies' models evolve over time as well. So it's you know really actually quite complex. Um, in in order to kind of do the work myself, um, you know, I first asked the question does the, does the study exist elsewhere? And it turns out that shockingly despite how dominant these companies have become there, I wasn't able to find a single like rigorous empirical study like a quant analysis of how these companies have performed. And so what I did was I looked at all these descriptions I and mean, I read Alex's book and you know they you know you gave a really good description as well. but the kind of thing that was surprising to me was that there wasn't really much consensus. you know for example, like um, everyone would say Facebook is a, a platform but not everyone would say Oracle, or not everyone would say NICE, um or ICE, right? So, you know, th- you know, there are some slight variance of subjectivity in this, and, and some of it might just come back down to what Alice was saying with regards to, you know, what percentage of revenue is coming from platforms or not. But the point is that, you know, from a quant standpoint, that doesn't work, right? You really need three things in order for a framework to be successful. So it needs to be objective. Um, second, it needs to be scalable. And third point in time. So let's go through these three things, okay? So, objective. Imagine the goal was to classify Apple, right? So, like any good equity analyst, we go to Edgar and we download the 10K and we go to the first section, the business description, and we read it. And let's say, Jeremy, you were saying, you know what? I think Apple's a platform. And let's say Alex were to say, I don't think it's a platform. Well, look, you're obviously both right. They, you know, the company has both platform and not platform elements, but we need a consistent definition if we want to build a model on it. So, that's the first challenge. The second challenge is scalability, which is, look, even if we could all agree, let's imagine we had this like um, rule set that we all agreed up front on, and we were able to consistently rate platforms. So that's great, but how are we going to do 3,000 10Ks? It's just not a you know, scalable thing for a human to do. And the third challenge is point in time. So let's imagine we were able to chug a bunch of Red Bull and you know, crank through all these 10Ks. Well, here's the thing. You can't just go and pop open the, the 10K from 2010 and erase the memory of the past decade. And, and, and go there and say, well, Apple, you know, doesn't, is, is not a platform, it is a platform, um, you know, without the benefit of hindsight. And so it's really important to be able to do that, too. And so that was why I decided to break out natural language processing. It's kind of the perfect use case, right? The advantage of ML algorithms is that they are objective. You, you know, scope out the problem and it will more or less deterministically come up with an answer. Um, they're highly scalable, obviously. You can process pretty much all the 10Ks over the past decade in a matter of minutes. And, you know, also also assuming that you do give the data only information available to it in real time. So at the time um, that the 10K came out, then it is truly point in time. So that was kind of the overall framework that I used, you know, going to the project
1: let me just reintroduce our guests here we're talking with kai wu the founder cio of sparkline capital alex Mosette, ceo founder of applico who focuses on platform companies and, and this sort of really interesting piece of research kai on talking about scoring companies from one to even negative one that people could have be like the opposite of a platform like maybe talk through that machine learning how you come up with a score um you know to try to to judge this platform effectiveness and who's sure. a negative platform
0: yeah, so the model I use is called Word Embeddings or Document Embeddings. You can just look that up um, if you want. Uh, I won't get too much into the methodology, but you know, from a high level, what these models try to do is they train a shallow neural network to capture the semantic meaning of a textual document into a vector. So in other words, where you can comp- compress a text passage like the Apple 10K business description into a vector, let's say a 100-dimensional vector. So we're taking a bunch of natural unstructured text squeezing it into a vector. Once this is done, we can easily calculate the similarity between two different vectors with simple um, algebra. So for example, imagine I did this on Apple and then did it on Google. Well, the similarity of the two vectors is very high. You would get a score close to one. Um, If you did Apple versus GM, the score would be lower. It might even be slightly negative. And so you can create these word vectors or document vectors for every single company and then compare them. So I did this, you know, work about a year ago and, you know, it it was useful for a variety of applications, but, you know, the kind of insight I had when it came to platform companies was, look, you don't have to compare a 10K to a 10K. You can compare a 10K to any arbitrary text document. I could compare it to Harry Potter if I wanted to. You know, in this case, I needed a definition of a platform, some kind of written description of what is a platform. You know, it could be a sentence or it could be, you know, 100 pages. doesn't really matter. And then from there I could feed that into this model and then compare the semantic similarity of that description to an arbitrary number of 10Ks. So I could have used the passage from Allison's book. I actually initially thought about doing that. But the problem is that the book came out more recently. And what I really wanted was something that came out, like, in the mid-2000s before Facebook became Facebook, right? Because, you know, not saying that this is the case, but there's always the kind of subliminal chance that somebody, that the definition of a platform might kind of be ex-post defined to fit some kind of, narrative that we know played out through history um so i found some work by three professors eisenman parker and van Alstein. um they've written extensively in platforms i even think they have a book but the thing that i was able to find was these two early articles from like the mid-2000s and it just turns out that you know i think jeremy you mentioned the framework i ended up going with on the taxonomy side was transaction versus innovation platforms where transaction platforms are you know matchers of buyers and sellers doesn't give a stock market and um and innovation platforms are um, technological foundations upon which third parties can build complementary innovations. So think about like Wintel. Um, the, you know, the, it just so happened that these two articles, one covered transaction, the other covered innovation. So it was really easy for me to just take these two articles, put them together, and there it had like a comprehensive description of you know a, a broad swath of platform businesses. And so from there, with these articles in hand, all I had to do was compare every 10K with these articles in the model and as you said, this generates a score from negative one to one. So one means it's definitely a platform. Zero means it's not a platform. And negative one means it's like an anti platform. Don't really know what that means. But um, so I created. Short. A, a things threshold. you want to short. Yeah. Things you might want to short. I, I created a threshold at 0.33 um, just to kind of, it's a kind of arbitrary threshold, but just to define it into a binary classification. Right. So it is the case that every company, like Apple, might be a 0.3 or 0.4, and Amazon might be a, you know, but we want things to be binary just for the purpose of this study. Um, And look, with any machine learning tool, it's really important to verify the results intuitively. Machine learning models have a tendency, if you kind of let them run wild, to go down weird rabbit holes and produce results that just make no sense. So the first thing I did was I looked at the list of names, and the list made a ton of sense. You know, you had a nice mix of stalwarts like Microsoft and PayPal, and then also some newer firms like Match um, or Tinder, right? Um, and the second thing I did was I looked at the point in time, and this is where things I thought got really interesting. And this is show, kind of shows the power of using machine learning, which is, look, each year we get a fresh set of 10Ks. So we can see how the platform score of a given company evolves over time. So I had a chart where I show Amazon. Right? Amazon started in the late 90s uh, or mid 90s as a simple online bookstore. Right? They just sold books. Um, and as a result, they had a low score. However, as they added more platform elements to their business, right, they added a third party marketplace, um, Amazon Web Services, and Kindle Publishing. The platform score gradually increased until it got to a point where it was very clearly in the 0.33 plus category. Um, So, yeah, overall, you know, I was able to be comfortable with the way that this algorithm was producing results that, you know, would be similar to what a human, you know, might um, decide.
3: So, what do you do about, for example, if you read through the 10Ks of a firm, Zoom, Netflix, they call themselves a the platform. They talk about their network effects all the time. It's all over the 10K. So does your machine learning algorithm learn to decipher between what, I mean, every executive team, they're smart. They know what boosts up the multiple, so you can say you have network effects, you've got Winner-take-all dynamics, you're a platform business. But how do you decipher if they're actually telling the truth or if what they're describing is actually a platform business or some you know, pseudo-network effects that actually aren't a material part of their business?
0: Right. So you bring up a really interesting point, which is this idea of narrative. Right? CEOs are incentivized to construct a narrative. Um, you know, I've actually looked at this not with regards to platformers but with regards to AI, Right. So the, my last paper, or two papers ago, I talk about how you know the CEOs are—they talk a big game about how much AI they use—but at the end of the day, they are just you know oftentimes posturing, and you know you need to track like human capital flows. Like are they actually hiring people with AI skills, data scientists, machine learning experts, or or not? And that's like a, a ground truth way of verifying that. Now in this case here, you know I, what this is an earlier paper, so I hadn't yet you know gone down that path. So yes, there is the potential that this methodology could be you know, flummoxed by a company that you know, strategically placed the word platform in many times. But keep in mind that this method isn't just a kind of word matching thing, right? You know, there's, of course, like this, the most basic machine learning algorithm just looks for the word platform, it's like a, a word count. And the, you know, the, num- the percentage of words that are platform gives you a higher score. That's not what this is doing, right? This is looking at the, you know, description uh, by these, you know, these, these are like 20 page articles by you know academic researchers about you know we talk about network effects, talk about the dynamics of platforms, and look for the similarity there. So it's a little bit harder to fool than that. Um, but I will agree, of course, with what you're saying that if a company like Netflix emphasizes its network effects, emphasizes these things, um, it will all things equal shade it a little bit higher. But you know it still won't necessarily be the highest. And you know granted, of course, there are. You know, the strength of a moat, the strength of network effect moat depends on a variety of factors, right? Like switching costs, multi-homing, you know, we all know all these things that won't necessarily be discussed in the article. So I guess it's maybe more, maybe the 10Ks are more a way of finding if a company thinks of itself, self identified as a platform or if they're a platform elements of the business, but not necessarily ranking them with regard to how strong that moat is. Um, you know, that's kind of the job of a, of a, some, a stock maker to kind of find alpha. Within platforms, and that's an important point that I make as well, which is, look, like anyone who knew Facebook was going to become Facebook would make a ton of money, obviously. But like my skepticism with um, people who thought that, who kind of made the claim that platform companies are, you know, always a good investment, initially at least, until I actually ran this data, was, look, I, I was skeptical that, um, you know, the perceived success of platforms wasn't simply due to survivorship bias. Right. The payoffs, as we discussed, tend to be winner take all. So for each Facebook, there's a hundred failed companies. Right? Human nature is to forget the winner. To remember the winners, forget the losers. And so what if we just thought about platforms as an asset class? What if all we did was we say we're gonna buy at each point in time every single platform company, even false positives, right? So maybe you, you maybe you wouldn't think that Netflix is a platform. Enough people think it is, and it might be kind of close to the border enough that we'll just, you know, give it the benefit of the doubt. The question is does this actually work, right? Because you know, they. Um, the, if you can't take winners anymore, does it still actually work, right? You know, think with the VC model, right? The the one or two companies that are hundred X, hundred baggers pay for all the losers. Is that the same dynamic here? And you know, when when all is said and done, does the Facebook pay for all the myspaces?
3: And you've yeah, you w- to look at apples to apples. If you're comparing, if you're if you're putting platforms then you're going to have winners and losers in an asset class. And then you're going to let the imposters, the fake lookalikes into the asset class as well. You're not helping yourself out. Like I've read through Affirm's 10K multiple times. Max Levchin, the guy's a genius. He comes out of PayPal. He understands platforms. PayPal is an actual platform business. Affirm, 90 plus percent of their revenue is them just being a lender they do it through this b2b to c model they lend through retail partners etc but they're a lender a digitally enabled lender with a great business and then they have a small little part of their business which lets you buy products from their retail partners that has a legitimate platform product marketplace dynamic but and it's all over their 10k and they talk a lot about platform and network effect they talk a lot about their little product marketplace business. But that's because Max and the team is very smart and they understand platforms and they understand the story that they want to tell to investors. And so the hard part is really saying, you're going to have winners and losers in any basket, in any asset class. The point is you want to get the right basket so that you don't have a bunch of losers in there that you didn't have to have and that the winners are going to outperform You're going to have more winners than you have losers. And I think that's the real challenge in today's environment is exactly the stuff you're speaking to, Kai. There's a lot of interference. Everyone likes to say they're a platform. Everyone likes to say they've got network effects. But do they actually? And in large part, they don't. Or it's not a material part of their business. um, Or it's not as material as they would like it to be, but they certainly talk like it's much bigger than it is. And how do you figure out what is real and what is not? And then if you can do that successfully and build that asset class, will that asset class perform? And I would say it does. And we have done it. And we've got about, you know, 50 or so platform stocks in that index, um, which are, uh, frankly, unstoppable.
1: We've got Kai Wu of Sparkline Capital, Alex Mosette of Applico. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We are listening to Behind the Markets. We are just talking about the challenges of identifying platform companies and all the things that Kai's team and, and Alex's team both have looked at platforms independently. Uh, Kai, we were just talking about performance, uh, or I, was, we're getting to, I, I think we were going to talk about how these platform companies have done. And, and you did some studies on a cap-weighted and equal-weighted basis going back about 12 years um you want to talk about how they performed and sort of the drivers, you know, how much of it was sales growth driven versus other factors? Like, what, what, what's your sense of uh, what, what you saw from the performance of platform companies?
0: Yeah, no, this is what I, I found this result to be actually pretty surprising. Right, Remind, Remember, I came in with the kind of skeptical view that it wasn't clear that ex ante platforms were actually superior versus models because for all their pluses, there was also some significant challenges, chicken and the egg problem, et cetera. Um, but, you know, as it turns out, based on the data, they have done extremely well. Um, platform businesses on a cap-weighted basis have outperformed the S&P by 8.7 percent um, per year, um, which is pretty incredible. Um, you know, obviously, it's important to have control for a variety of factors, such as size and industry. Um, but, look, the results are robust to those as well. Right? It isn't the case that the performance is all just the five big tech guys. Also, even the smaller and more mid-cap um, names, including those in other industries outside of, you know, information communication technology, have managed to you know, take share from their competitors. So, you know, pretty robust finding actually. Um, you know, the other thing I looked at was by vintage. I said, is it the case that you know the old guard of platforms, right, the Microsofts, um, perform better or worse than the new guard? Um, you know, as far as I can tell, it's pretty much indistinguishable. So the model has been robust to a variety of different things um, you know, across sector size, et cetera. Um, you know, one of the important criticisms that you know, one might get in, in doing this exercise is you know, that the performance of these companies may be driven solely by rising valuations. So in other words, the idea that the market has gradually recognized the dominance of this business model and over time assigned a higher and higher multiple, like fee ratio. And that's kind of a one-time gain that won't come back, and in fact could mean re- revert. So that was an important um, potential weakness of the study. So you know, naturally I w- went to the math and decomposed the returns into three parts. So again, this is an identity, just like ma- mathematically this has to be true, which is that total returns of any basket can be decomposed into three components. Um, the first is my like change in sales or fundamental growth. Second is change in valuation, or in this case change in price-to-sales ratios. And third is income, or in this case, dividend yields. And, you know, I put this chart in where I look at the performance of the platform basket against the market. So all these numbers are going to be relative to um, the S&P. And what I found was, you know, most interestingly, that the valuation component has more or less been a round trip. Yes, the past couple of years, valuations have increased a bit. But that's actually largely due to the introduction of these hot IPOs like Snowflake into the mix. Um, and less about, you know, the broad-based basket actually being priced more than the market. Um, so for the most part, that's a round trip. Where all, the, where all the returns come from is fundamental growth. So in this case, sales growth. I told you before that the platforms outperforming the market by 8.7% per year. Well, 8.7% per year is also the rate at which these, these companies fundamentally outgrew the market. And that's you know whether expanding into new markets or into uh, or taking share from competitors, you know either case, either way, these companies have actually delivered on on their growth in a way that the market never expected, as evidenced by the valuations not on um, being a huge component.
1: Yeah, that was to me one of the most interesting. Char- I mean, There's a lot of interesting pieces in this in this in this uh, document, but the fact that they're growing. The state, the sales growth chart you have, where it's basically just like a, almost like a straight line regression line, essentially in the last twelve years. It's, it's almost a very steady sales growth. I mean, I, and, and Alex has identified these platform companies. When I look at his basket of, you know, at the end of the year, I was showing the S and P five hundred three year Kager on the revenue growth being around nine percent a year. Uh, the platform companies. Alex is identified as growing at 25% a year um, when something like uh, the growth indexes are 15, 16%. So yeah, even, a, even there, like a, a thousand basis points more than a traditional growth index that their revenue is growing at the, these premium numbers. And I guess the big question to me is like how sustainable is this growth rates? And, and uh, maybe Alex, any, any commentary to you on how long do you think the, these premium growth rates can persist for?
3: Uh, I mean, everyone, at least when it comes to the large tech monopolies, the famgas of the world, you know, I think everyone uh, is assuming or hoping that regulation or legislation is is going to save the day. I am not as bullish. Um, And I actually don't think these tech monopolies, I actually think they come out of this in three, five years from now, relatively unscathed. Um, There's just so much regulatory capture in the system, these companies have been around for so long. Um, they're very powerful, very wealthy, and um, it's uh, it's a lot harder said than done than um, to actually truly affect some kind of meaningful negative impact on their business operations. So um, it may be a little bit harder for them to get to use M and A as a growth accelerant, which has been a a meaningful way that these platform conglomerates have continued to expand into new markets. So I think they're certainly a little bit more reticent to use that mechanism. But you still see Facebook buying things like customer um, and still doing deals um, uh, sporadically here. So, um, yeah, what's going to slow them down is is really, I think, just a matter of where we've seen a lot of growth the past six months or some of these kind of what I call mid-market platform companies 20 to 50 billion, 20 to 100 billion dollars in size. You know, look at Uber, look at Snapchat, look at ones that aren't yet these hundreds of billions or trillion dollar companies. We've seen a lot of growth past 6 months from those companies. And so it's uh it's still an environment where those mid-market platforms aren't just competing against the tech monopolies for market share, they're still grabbing it from who? The traditional incumbents. Um, and COVID has been a huge accelerant to just, you know, if, if there is any event to shift things more towards digital, COVID was the, the prime example of just um, how powerful these digital business models are. And um, traditional incumbents have been suffering uh, because of uh, their inability to compete as aggressively in that area.
1: Kai, you also did a little bit of looking at the future of platforms and, and had a pretty cool chart on what are the percentages of companies in a sector that you've identified as platform companies. Top, you've got communications and tech, where you've said about 50 to 60%, then some that there's like nothing in yet, staples, the commodity sectors, healthcare, pretty low. Um, how do you see the future of platforms evolving?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think if you think about it from a very high level, look, the platform business model is not new, right? They had you know, spice markets and commodity pits. Back in the day, they had shopping malls or a former platform. What's really accelerated platforms has been the rise of the internet, globalization, technology, right? Network fa- effects are you know, a convex function of network size. And so as the world gets more and more connected, um, you know, we can see the value of effects explode exponentially. And so naturally, it'll be areas that are very information intensive, you know, asset light, whatever that are the first to see to re, to see the benefits of platforms, and within which platform companies have the strongest advantage over incumbents. So naturally, communications and information technology are you know sixty plus percent of those companies are now platforms, and you know we're probably soon going to see the point of which of saturation, at which point pretty much everyone is a platform or a perceived platform in that space. Um, so if you want to continue this trend, right, which is you know, 12 years ago, there were 40 platforms. Now, now there's 100 in the S&P 500. If that number were to go higher, just mathematically, it needs to come from other industries. It needs to come from real estate, industrials, financials. Um, and I think it will. I mean, I think it's, you know, not as low-hanging fruit, obviously, because the extent to which, you know, the world is kind of small and connected is, is less so in, in these industries. But, you know, the whole you know, thing in Internet of Things and, and the, all these fintechs, are trying to democratize and, and you know, peer peer lending. All, all these, these companies that are trying to kind of change their industries, I think they will eventually have success. You know, it's obviously really hyped and you know, there's been some false starts here and there, but I think over time we will start, we will continue to see software and technology kind of continue to eat the world and spread across industries, at which point there will be an opening for the platform business model to, uh, to take over.
1: Alex, you've talked about the future of some of those sectors and and industrials and and others. Any other views on on the evolution real quick?
3: Uh, I I think there's strong platform penetration in just just about every vertical, real estate and finance included. Um, Healthcare is probably the second least, and then the most least is energy um, that you have – Strong platform, public platform stocks in um, healthcare. Though uh, there, there are um, still a couple strong businesses in there, like Teladoc and some others that are either recently IPO'd or or, or going to go public over the next six to twelve months here. So um, that really kind of just leaves energy. Energy has been a laggard uh, as it relates to platform business models, but. Yeah, just about, we, we look at the world kind of differently. Um, there isn't really like a IT industry. It's basically just, there are more of your standard industries, uh, classifications, and then you have platform business models and pretty much every single one of those industry sectors except for energy. Um, so, but including healthcare. So I think, yeah, that trend is going to continue. And, um, And these traditional incumbents, if they don't want to have more market share taken away from them, then they've got to figure out how to embrace uh, and get involved uh, in these digital platform marketplace type models uh, or just continue to be left behind.
1: I want to sort of step back from the details here because we've gone pretty deep on platforms. Kai, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about – um, without sort of specific product, but like, how does how does Sparkline think about you know you you did a, this piece on platforms? Um, one of your more recent pieces focused on superstar talent and trying to identify you know companies who are hiring from the sort of elite companies, elite universities, whatever, and, and how the excess returns to those are. How do you think about building these concepts into portfolios? What are the types of strategies Sparkline is offering that incorporates these different machine learning uh, ideas?
0: So obviously I can't talk about specific products, um, but you know, if you just step back, all the things I've been writing about connect with this common arc, this common idea of intangible assets. Right. I mentioned in the very beginning of this conversation that you know 50 to 80 percent of the market is now intangible. Yet, you know, most investors and especially quantitative investors um, are pretty much just stuck valuing that you know 20 to 50 percent um, the the book value, price of book, things like that. And so, I think it's super important for investors, and in particular quant investors, to develop tools to value intangibles. And you know, in the case of network effects, I think you know platforms are kind of the You know, most logical area of study, but you know, in case of human capital, it's kind of an unrelated concept. And for that, for that, I I really went back to you know, looking at labor flows, looking at data from you know LinkedIn and things like that, um, on educational background, skills, PhDs, trying to get a better sense of which firms truly invest in human capital, with the idea that that could potentially lead to excess returns. Um, So you know, everything's a little bit different, but it it is kind of connected by that common theme
1: yeah and and is there anything that you think you could do to save value i know you know coming from gmo you've talked a little bit got another piece on how value is short disruption uh tech disruption anything in that world uh thinking about 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 bringing value back is value coming back despite uh despite being short tech here
0: well value coming back in the past few months and probably for the next few months solely due to cyclical recovery Right. Jeremy Siegel was talking about, you know, the reopening trade and the cruise lines. Like if that plays out, which, you know, unless there's a resurgence of the virus due to some mutations or anything, um, likely will, I could, you know, easily see a resurgence in those kind of beaten down cyclical stocks. But that's, you know, different. That that kind of cyclical um, thing is different from the secular trend of, you know, value in general. And will it kind of as you recycle over, you know, multi decade decade periods, how does it do? And, you know, I think there, you know, I, as I said at the very beginning, am a value investor. Right? I believe in a concept of buying things low fair value. It's almost like by definition true, right? You buy low, sell high in the market. Of course, the thing is that what is fair value just needs to be evolved to not just be, you know, trailing earnings or, um, you know, or tangible book value. It needs to incorporate, you know, you know, growth prospects of businesses. You're not just buying companies that are clearly being disrupted there' are some companies with decent trailing earnings, but everyone knows their earnings are going to zero. yet you know quantitative models will still buy them on on that kind of kind of dumb basis. So you just can't be doing that. That doesn't make any sense. So you know again, going back to two things you need to do is be aware of um, these value traps, companies that are being disrupted, and you know taking taking into account more forward-looking information. And second, um take into account the intangible value on firms' balance sheets that you know may not be easily accessible, but if you do some work, you can quantify these things, and these are the firms that are truly positioned to, you know, in the case of platforms, become monopolies, but in other um, areas, human discretionary, et cetera, are the companies that will ultimately be, be kind of high-quality winners, high-quality compounders um, over the next decade.
1: Yeah, I really found one of your charts in that value investing short-tech disruption where you show disruption-neutral value being slightly up or or pot you know certainly a flat line over twelve years versus value, which was like a off the cliffs negative for for twelve years uh pretty painful for value investors it was really interesting looking at this disruption neutral alex any closing thoughts on platform companies how you think about building it into portfolios what is is as you think about the platform dominance here
3: yeah i mean uh <laughs> but buy and invest in the platform stocks, that's a no brainer at this point. I mean, 2021, invest in the platforms, okay? I think to your point about value, right? Just because an industry is ripe for disruption doesn't mean that value stocks, value companies that are value um, can't be successful. And I think that's a question to say, which of the traditional businesses are embracing new business models doesn't mean that they're trying to become the platform and they're trying to go and do crazy tech M&A, but they can strike partnerships. They can strike um, new deals with the up and coming platform model, right? If they can evolve their traditional model to embrace the new way of doing business in their industry, that's where I think you see traditional value stocks being able to outperform, right? If you just try and say which industries, which value industries aren't gonna be disrupted, have fun with that exercise. Instead, I think which industries are gonna have some level of disruption, which are the value stocks with the right management that are able to understand these digital disruptive forces and then figure out how they can carve out their sliver within that, right? Who can best we're, cooperate with some of these, have for to- example, mid-market platform companies and, and
1: thrive. Well, Alex, Kai, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer Chris Tukes, Kai Wu, Sparkline Capital, Optimus at Applico. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com.